This is My Rank Edges Busted, a podcast produced by Agriculture Victoria. I'm Gemma Pearl, and here we talk about all things climate and farming. In this episode, Agriculture Victoria's Dale Gray, Graham Anderson, and I talk to Think Agri's Kate Burke. We had such a great time talking to Kate that we have had to split the interview out over two episodes. In this episode, we talk about seasonal risk decision-making and some of Kate's tips from her many years of experience. We asked Kate to recall how seasonal risk information has changed over this time. I reckon we're, one of the good things is we've got a lot more information at our fingertips compared to when I first started working in ag. My first year of working was 1990, which um, I think on memory was an El Nino year, but I didn't ever know what an El Nino was then. Uh, I do recall canola flowering just outside of Doohan in about June, <laughs> um, June, July. So we're a lot more informed. I guess what we've noticed, though, is, you know, go, go to 2002, which was the first real proper drought that I experienced in my career, and I'd been in the career 12 years by then. We just assumed that the 83 phenomenon, you know, that you get a great year after a bad year. And 2003 was okay for some, not great for others, but then we started to get all these other horrible years happening. I recall in 97 actually going to a seminar that um, Swee Hockman and some of the other uh, CSIRO guys, and they sort of put up this, this model where they were basically saying that we were about to enter a 10-year cycle of ordinariness. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, what a load of something. And um, because I didn't know anything, um, but you think you know everything when you're, you know, in your mid-20s. And they were right. <laughs> but we still have this mentality in our head that dry years should, shouldn't happen very often. So even though we went through that millennial drought and learned how to manage risk and particularly, you know, in... in in the Mallee in Victoria and in Western Victoria and and towards the end of the millennial drought through work through the work that you guys did with your climate dogs and with the break, we we got to understand about variability and why it happens and the penny started to drop. But then when it happens again, say in 2015 or, two, or 17, 18, 19, all of a sudden we're back in disaster mentality. Yeah, and it's not pleasant. No one wants to live through those circumstances. But we just have to get used to it and manage it, I think, because they're not happening once or twice a generation now. They're happening a few times a decade. And until we accept that and then start to work with it, and I think this is really important for advisors because it's not our job to go out in sympathy and, and lose our ability to make rational decisions during tough times. It's our job to do whatever we have to do to, to be that calm voice of reason and use whatever tools we've got. I was just wondering from your point of view, how important is seasonal variability that, that you've seen on the impact of the farm businesses you work with and what are some tips for how to how do you set up a farm business to try and 
you know, roll with that variability and make the most of the good years and and uh, limit damage in the bad, especially when you don't know what's going to happen. Really good question. And I think it's a matter of, obviously, it's it's vital to get your head around this and and understand where you fit in the scheme of variability. It was a real eye-opener for me when I started seeing people present just simple rainfall variability and using standard deviation or coefficient of variation of, of annual rainfall to look at that variability and just see the differences there are around the cropping regions in both Victoria and in southern Australia in general. And and once you understand, you know, that you're in Mildura and that one year your rainfall could be twice as much as it was the previous year and that's quite normal for your region, it really changes how you think about things. Similarly, it, it also helps you understand that when the good years are eventuating, you've got to take that opportunity and, and in those more variable and less pleasant years, it's really a matter of just battening down the hatches. Um, well, not battening down the hatches, but basically minimising losses in, in the extreme poor years. I think one thing we, we make a bit of a mistake when we try to level out our business and, and, and minimise the variability within the business because by doing that, we could actually be foregoing opportunity. And there's a difference between variability and volatility and, and the risk that comes with, with both of those, I think. Yeah, so Kate, when I guess it's interesting when we're, you know, pre the autumn break and planning out the season, of course, we're always really hopeful that that each year is going to be a ripper. So how do you set up to, to be ready to, to make the most of things, but um, what, so, what sort of scenarios or what, what do you use when you're helping set up a business for how, how to play it the year out as it unfolds? Yeah, considering we only have rippers, say, you know, two in ten years, I sort of don't start with that. Um, what I like to do, though, is is look at our base level of where we're at now. So and think about, well, if we're, we're in the game of cropping, uh, we're, we're basically dry land cropping, we're farming soil moisture. So so how, how full's the bucket at the beginning of the year is, is the first place I look at. And then I think, well, what are the, what are the uh, climate models telling me about what might happen in the next three months? You know, let's assume that uh, we're coming out of a dry spell, for example, but there's a, um, all the models are suggesting uh, that it's going to be above average for the next three months. And let's use the current example, we're in a La Nina phase, um, depending where, where you are and where these summer storms sit, you know, it gives you a hint that you might end up with some subsoil moisture by, by sowing time. On the flip side of that, you know, you can have you. So what what happens if that rain doesn't occur, and what happens if you're being you're in the area that missed out last year, and you've got a really dry soil profile, and you haven't been able to get any of these storms through? So you're probably going to have a below average 
soil moisture bank and obviously you can measure that too. So I tend to start with where you're at. Then in terms of projecting forward and what the possibilities are, that's where I use um, some of the tools that you and your colleagues have produced along with the tools that come out of the Bureau and, and have a look at the form guide. So have a look at those models from around the world and, and your summaries of them and, and see what they're saying about the, the next few months and whether they're saying the same thing or not. And if they're all suggesting the same thing, that's when I think, oh, okay, that's interesting. We Either we get excited or we get a bit concerned, depending on whether it's a positive or a negative indicator. And if they're all over the shop, it's like, oh, well, we just have to face every ball as it comes, um, if we were playing cricket, for example. So I do that and... And so in some years you can be, so 2015 was a classic where already talking high possibility of El Nino and IOD positive for that year. And so my alarms just go right off when I hear that. And if you've got 10 out of 12 or 8 out of 10, whatever number of models you've got, all saying the same thing, and, you know, I get really nervous. If it's a more benign type situation, I think you do need to be mindful and have a bet each way in terms of how we're setting up the season and what we're planning for. A lot of people like using averages as their baseline for decision making. But is this wise? So I suppose you know, I'll stole this statement from, from uh, Bill Malcolm from Melbourne Uni you know, that, that averages are an artificial construct. And averages are work okay okay if there's not very big extremes. But because we're getting so many extremes now, you know, we're getting like the lowest on record one year, then three years later we've got the highest on record and we've got a few in between. And this variability doesn't look like it's going away. If we if we make an average out of that and plan for that average, well it's a bit meaningless. So I tend to take an average of the good years, an average of the bad years, and an average of the ones in between and and say, well, what does that mean for us? And then try and match those up with the climate indicators. And I found that really quite useful last year because instead of, you know, targeting average in terms of yield potential, we were leaning towards higher than than average and looking at the averages of other years where we'd had um, cool finishes, for example, because of a La Nina or IOD negative and factoring that in, even though it wasn't necessarily presenting in, in rainfall. Kate, you're spot on. I, I do so many talks around southeastern Australia and look at the historical rainfall. And I, I ask people, you put up the data and go, how many of those growing seasons are close to the average? And the answer for just about every location is about 10% that are close to the average. 60% of them are nowhere near it. <laughs> like they're either grossly wetter or grossly drier. So if you're banking on the thing that might happen one in three times, you're missing out on the other 66%. It's, it's tricky to do. I guess the practical implications of this is when, when we're making decisions on things like nitrogen, 
It's really concerning if we're sitting in a ute with someone and we're, you know, let's say the Wimmera average is 3.2 tonne to the hectare of, of wheat. Um, could be even a bit more than that over the last few years. We're sitting there and um, all our advice is based on 3.2 tonne to the wheat, to the hectare, um, and we're not taking into account what the climate's delivered us up until that date and what the possibilities are for the next four months. You know, there's a lot of dollars involved in, in, in that shortcut. And talk us through some of the difference, Kate, like just between, you know, in those last few years in that yield and the difference, you know, if you're driving in the yield because when things are going right um, or, or when you're backing your judgment because things are lining up that this could be one of those upside years, how does that translate out to differences in yield and the businesses? Yeah, well, first thing I'll say is it's not easy because <laughs> last year I was getting very, very nervous in um in September, and uh, I was sweating on all those conversations I'd had on on other podcasts and and seminars and and my own clients. So it isn't easy. The the I guess you're talking five, you know, five and six ton in a medium rainfall area in those really favourable years, opposed to say the three ton that equates to a an average. And then the flip side of that is, you know, if you look at just the IOD positive and and El Nino years, so the, the fair income drought years, you know, once you add frost into there, you're sort of looking anywhere between zero and two tonne to the hectare. So so la- just take last year, for example, we've set up crops for, for three tonne, leave two tonne to the hectare of wheat behind at current wheat prices, that's anywhere between $600 and um, $800 a hectare left in the paddock. Now, obviously, we can't get all of that, but um, effectively that money pays for the putting the next year's crop in plus your overheads. I did some sums on this, Graham, sort of uh, using, I think it was 2017 as the year in the Wimmera based on some um, one of the local accounting firms benchmarking figures and and the amount of money left behind um, was extraordinary it was I think it was I worked out something like for the Wimmera it was 80 million dollars on a really simplistic way of working it out uh, you can read all about it in the book so I suppose when we think about you know government grants and political support and all these things there's a lot of value staying out in the field in in good seasons you you're alluding to earlier with with perhaps increasing variability it's sort of just upping the ante between which sort of which one of those years have we got in front of us and the importance of capturing those good years which are then relying on decisions made by the human so when there's plenty of extra moisture around how do you capture it so that it converts across to the balance book because it's 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 always easier in hindsight but it is a uh, uh, fortune favours the brave. Yeah, and and it's easy reflecting on if I just use the the Wimmera again, the southern part of the central Wimmera ended up having another fantastic year, but you don't have to go too far north to miss that. And so, knowing what's happening on your place and knowing what 
the climate indicators might be saying, well, we should be heading for this type of year, but if it's not raining on your place, you, you know, you need to be making decisions around that too. And what's that saying? If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Yeah, if you've only had decile two or three rainfall to date, there's not many years, Kate, that suddenly flipped to eight. <laughs> They're pretty rare. Yeah, yeah. They Some of them happen, but not not often. 1993, everyone remembers that one. Yeah, that's true. We always remember the, the favourable. And I guess the flip side to that, though, Dal, is also this whole concept of what's what's in the bank before the season. So 2011, it didn't rain a lot in the season of 2011, but in crop, was awful we had incredible soil moisture and um, it was a real challenge for people to have that confidence after 10 years of horribleness and then you know a bit traumatized by floods it was it was a big challenge to to encourage people to to believe that there was the potential there and I think we've got less excuses now with the monitoring tools that we've got and, and the more accessible information. I think that you might have been a turnaround for a lot of people, Kate, because a lot of people saw what they're capable of growing with very little in-season rainfall. And it's, it's seems believing, as they say. So, you know, people that were stripping four and five tonne crops in relatively low rainfall areas, but all based on stored soil profile, you know, they've remembered that. And they're more likely to be acting more favourably, I think, in the future. And the other real learning curve that year was we sort of had this attitude and I guess it comes from down south a bit of well there's excess water there so we don't need to be so diligent on summer weed control and you know but then we saw firsthand areas where you couldn't get the boom spray and they'd be full of pigweed and crassula and all these funny funny water weeds then you'd see the other half, the, the bit where we did eventually get, get some spraying done, come back into those crops in August, and you're thinking, oh, what's going on here? And that area that wasn't sprayed was so damn nitrogen deficient and probably had a bit of root disease and obviously it had sucked up some moisture. That really got a lot of people over the line in terms of understanding the importance of off-season weed control regardless of, of rainfall. And even, you know, the 80-year-old the sheep breeder whose son's madly in love with cropping all of a sudden stopped uh, complaining about his sheep feed getting sprayed out. Yeah, there were, there were fabulous in paddock comparisons that season because that's right, there were parts that were missed <laughs> and, um, and it was just chalk and cheese. And that was there right until harvest as well. Yeah, it was, it was fascinating. It's certainly something that always has stuck in my mind and I guess it's one of those... Well, it's, we, we never really knew the answer to that, and, well, then we did. That is where we will leave part one of our discussion with Kate. In the next episode, we will hear from Kate about her observations of some of the decisions people make when considering uncertainty. In the show notes, you will find more information and links to seasonal risk decision-making content. You can also get in contact with us at the.break at agriculture.vic.gov.au. Thank you for listening to My Rain Gauge is Busted. For more episodes in this series, find us and follow wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please leave a comment or rating and share this with your friends and family. All information is accurate 
at the time of release. Contact Agriculture Victoria or your consultant before making any changes on farm. This podcast was developed by Agriculture Victoria and the tribe. O-S-O-I-N-S-S-T's And what on earth is an IOD? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date, get the break. Oh, this bloke Dale, he's Richie Ditch. He knows about the subtropical ridge. The science comes in a secret code. But he knows about the southern annular mode. Well, this SST anomaly leads us to a decile of 1, 2, 3. The Nino 3 and Nino 3.4. Well, I've never heard of these terms before about SOINSSTs. And what on earth is an IOD? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date and get the break. Or keep your eyes out for Enso. Will it rain then? If so, when so? The farmers need you to be specific. What's happening out in the Pacific? For westerly wind bursts blow away. All our hopes of that rainy day. And will this year bring an El Nino? Come on, tell us, Dale. Cause we have to know about SOIs and SSDs. What on earth is an IOB? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date, get it right. SOIs and SSDs. And what on earth is an IOB? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date.